Over the summer, while all of you were home or out on the mission fields of the world, I led our church in a very special study on the doctrine of assurance, the assurance of salvation. When I searched around to try to find some literature to study on the subject of assurance, I was somewhat surprised to find a lack of modern material. Just about everything that was significant on the subject of assurance was written by people who'd been dead for a few centuries. And so it piqued my curiosity even more to deal with the subject, and the result of it was about eight messages on that particular theme. The response to it was quite remarkable, and um, my own comprehension of these matters of assurance were so solidified that I felt this was something I needed to share with you at some point during our year together, and I want to do that beginning this morning. I don't think I can get through all of it today, but I want to introduce it to you because I believe it's so very, very important. Many Christians, most Christians, most of you, will have times when you doubt your salvation, when you wonder whether you're really saved. Most Christians go through that. For some people, it is a fleeting moment. For some of them, it is a recurring pattern, and for others, it's a way of life. But we all struggle with this issue of doubt. Thomas Brooks, Puritan writing in 1654 said, Most Christians live between fears and hopes and hang, as it were, between heaven and hell. Sometimes they hope that their state is good. At other times they fear their state is bad. Now they hope all is well and that it shall go well with them forever. Then they fear that they shall perish by the hand of such a corruption or by the prevalency of such and such a temptation. They are like a ship in a storm tossed here and there. And it's somewhat comforting to know that Thomas Brooks, pastoring about 340 years ago, was facing the same kind of thing that a pastor faces today, and that is the reality that many people struggle with whether they're saved. I know you do because I did when I was at your point in life and spiritual growth. But it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Peter says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Peter says you need to be diligent to make sure about that. And I want to say to you, young people, there's really no reason to struggle with doubt. There's no reason to struggle with a lack of assurance. There's no reason to wonder whether you're really saved. The prophet Isaiah wrote, The work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. When God saved you, He wanted to place within that gift of salvation the attendant joy of assurance. When God grants righteousness in Christ, He grants assurance. It's kind of sad to think about it because it's so unnecessary, but many Christians sort of go to heaven in a fog. 
They go to heaven in a mist, not knowing for sure they're even going, which is a terrible way to take the trip, frankly. You could enjoy it a lot more if you were sure you were going there. So I want to talk to you about how you can know you're a Christian, how you can experience the joy of assurance. By the way, one of the old Puritan books was titled, The Christian's Great Interest. That's a good title. Because if there's anything that should interest us, that should be our consummate interest, it should be our spiritual state. Our highest interest should be concerning ourselves with whether we are really saved. And our greatest pursuit, the pursuit of the, of the assurance that gives us joy. There's no sense in having fleeting moments of doubt about your salvation. There's no sense in having recurring moments of doubt. There's no sense of having constant doubt. Because God wants to give us assurance. So I want to see if I can't strengthen this matter of assurance in your heart. Conversely, I admit that in so doing, if this series is effective as it ought to be, it will reveal if you are not a Christian and should have no reason for assurance. But before we get into that, just a couple of preliminary thoughts. There is such a thing as false assurance, all right? There is such a thing as thinking you're saved when you're not. The old uh, Negro spiritual put it this way, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. That's true. That's a profound statement, by the way. Some people have assurance who have no right to it. Some people believe they're going to heaven and they're not. They have believed a lie. They have been deceived. Hey, there are lots of Jehovah's Witnesses who think they're going to heaven. Many Mormons who think they're going to heaven. Many, many Roman Catholics who believe they're going to heaven and may enjoy some kind of psychological affirmation and assurance about that, but the fact is they're not. And there are a lot of people in Protestant churches and evangelical churches and probably some people in the Master's College who think they're going to heaven but who aren't. So, well, where do you get that idea? Well, Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into my kingdom. There are going to be some people, Jesus said in Matthew 7, who say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this and done that? Here's our credentials. Looks good to us. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, how did these people get their false assurance? Well, number one, they may have been taught false doctrine and coming along with a false system of salvation was a false assurance. So maybe they just were taught error and then taught that error was truth. And on the basis of being deceived into believing that error is truth, you believe you're going to heaven. But there are many people in evangelical Christianity who are deceived apart from erroneous teachings about salvation. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. How do people who are in our kind of churches get assurance about their salvation when they shouldn't have assurance? Well, sometimes it comes from well-meaning people, like maybe parents. Sometimes parents will say, well, you know, I know my, my, my son isn't living the way he ought to live. I had a mother say to me recently, my son is 31 years old, he's on the street. 
He's been living on the street somewhere in Denver, Colorado. He has no home. He is an alcoholic and a drug addict. He's been living that way for five years on the street. And she said, I want you to pray for him because I want him to come back to the Lord. He was saved when he was five. Now, I'm sure when the mother talks to that young man, if she ever has the opportunity, and she she said she hadn't talked to him in about four years, although he had written her a letter once and told her he was on the street. Whenever she would have the opportunity to talk with him, she might be prone to reinforce the fact that he was saved because of some childhood decision that he made. Very often, people reinforce something that didn't ever happen. Some prayer you prayed, some motion you made toward God at some point in your life. And it's possible that you can be living on an assurance that is really built upon the fact that somebody tells you that once you made a commitment to Christ, and that reassurance is all you really need. There's another kind of um, path to false assurance, and that is what I would call syllogistic assurance. This is pretty typical of contemporary evangelistic methodology. You know what a syllogism is, I assume. A syllogism has a major premise and a minor premise. Given that the major premise and the minor premise are true, the conclusion is true. Um, the syllogism might kind of go like this. Uh, John 1.12 As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, the major premise there is, anyone who receives Jesus becomes God's child. The minor premise would be, you received Jesus, conclusion, you're a child of God, right? Major premise is true. If you receive Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. Minor premise may not be true. But typically, this is what happens. You lead a person to understand the gospel. You say, now you pray this prayer and invite Christ into your life. And we've all done this. And they pray a prayer and they invite the Lord in their life. And then you say to them, now, the Bible says that if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved, right? Yes. You received the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Yes. You're saved. And then you go into a little discussion about assurance and you can know you're saved. And these things are written that you can know you're saved. And I don't want you to ever doubt. And Satan will cause you to doubt and make you doubt. But don't you doubt because major premise, if you receive Christ, you're a child of God. Minor premise, you did receive Jesus Christ, therefore you're a child of God. So don't you ever doubt. Now, the fallacy with that is, the minor premise, what, may not be true. Is a person saved because they said some words in a prayer? Not if they didn't, what, mean them in the heart. You don't know that. I'll be leaving on Sunday for the Soviet Union to uh, spend a few weeks with Bob Provost over there. I was told... Very interesting story by some of the Russian leaders about an evangelist that came into the Soviet Union and said, Now all of you that want to receive Jesus Christ, raise your hand. This was brand new to the Soviet Christians, and so people raised their hand in response to this kind of emotional appeal. And then he said, Now these are your new Christian brothers, turn around and greet them and meet them. And it shocked the Soviet Christians because to them... The the reality of salvation was proven by the pattern of life, not by sticking your hand in the air. But the confirmation of salvation by some outward or verbal expression is too simplistic. Too simplistic. And very often we give people a false assurance. What you need to say to a person is, 
God heard your prayer and He saw your heart. And if your prayer was sincere and your heart was genuine and it was true repentance and a true submission to Christ, then you're going to have evidence of it in the newness of life. And the Spirit of God will grant you assurance. You can't give assurance, not true assurance. I can't give assurance, not true assurance, because I don't know the condition of the heart. I can tell them it's there if their faith is real. So there are some people who have assurance who shouldn't have it because they're believing a false method of salvation because somebody keeps reinforcing to them that they're saved and that's not the fact. And thirdly, because somebody syllogizes them into believing that they're saved and convinces them they shouldn't ever question it when in fact they don't know that their faith was ever real in the beginning. There's a second consideration preliminary to discussing the joy of assurance, and that is this. There are some people who think you shouldn't have assurance. First point, some people think everybody ought to have assurance all the time, and so they'll try to give it to you. And then there are people who think you should never have it. Never. In other words, there are some who say that if you think you're saved permanently and forever, you are presuming on God. You have no right to think that. That's a historical Arminian view of theology which basically says we can never really be saved permanently. It's all a question of whether we sustain our level of obedience and commitment and faith. And so you can lose your salvation. Therefore, if you can lose your salvation, to think you can't lose your salvation is terrible presumption. It asserts that if a person thinks he's forever secure, then he's liable to go out and do anything he wants and be spiritually negligent so we can't let them think they're secure. This, by the way, is also the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church goes so far as to say, if you think you're secure in Christ forever, that is blasphemy. That is blasphemy. The Council of Trent declared that it was, get this, anathema to say, quote, that a man who is born again and justified is bound to believe that he is certainly in the number of the predestined. The Council of Trent says it is blasphemous and it is anathema to say that because I've been justified, I am for sure among the predestined. In G.C. Burkauer's book, Conflict with Rome, he says that Rome's denial of the assurance of salvation is consistent with its concept of salvation. Now listen to this. Since the Catholic Church conceives of salvation as a work of man and God, joint effort, God does his part, you do your part, and that therefore salvation occurred by a man-God effort and is sustained by a man-God effort, therefore you might lose it. Not that God would fail, but what? You might. Any view of salvation that has man as a partner is going to have to come up with the idea that you might lose your salvation. Arminian theology says God does his part, we do our part. That's salvation. And sanctification, God does His part, we do our part. And if we don't do our part, we'll lose our salvation. So where you have a salvation that is a joint effort between God and man, you have the absence of the doctrine of security and the absence of assurance. If my salvation depends totally on God, no problem. If it depends on God and me, He won't fail, I might. 
So whether you're talking about an Arminian view or Roman Catholic theology, there can be no security if man can default. But I believe the Bible teaches that salvation is all of God. And if it's all of God, it's forever. And if it's forever, you might as well enjoy the forever aspect of it. So, on the one hand, there are people who want to take away your assurance. On the other hand, there are people who want to give you assurance that you don't deserve. So let's see if we can't get the whole thing straight. And the way I want to do this is I want to give you eight reasons why people doubt their salvation. Okay? And I'll give you a few of them today and then in a few weeks when they let me back up here again, I'll give you the rest. Okay? Let me give you eight reasons for the loss of assurance or the absence of assurance. God wants you to have assurance and God wants you to have a justified or a right assurance, a true one, not a false one. Why do people doubt their salvation? Why do you doubt your salvation? Reason number one. And some of these are more critical and more applicable to you than others. But I want to give them to you anyway. Number one, strong preaching. Strong preaching is one reason people doubt their salvation. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Let me read you a letter. This is a letter that I received from a young man. Dear John... I always get those letters. Dear John, I've been attending Grace Church for several years. As a result of a growing conviction in my heart, your preaching and my seeming powerlessness against the temptations which arise in my heart and which I constantly succumb to, my growing doubts have led me to believe I'm not saved. He's telling me, because of your preaching... I don't think I'm saved. How sad it is, John, for me not to be able to enter in because of the sin which clings to me and from which I long to be free. How bizarre for one who has had advanced biblical training and who teaches in Sunday school with heartfelt conviction. So many times I have determined in my heart to repent, to shake loose my desire to sin, to forsake all for Jesus, only to find myself doing the sin I don't want to do and not doing the good I want to do. After my fiancé and I broke up, I memorized Ephesians as part of an all-out effort against sin, only to find myself weaker and more painfully aware of my sinfulness, more prone to sin than ever before, and grabbing cheap thrills to push back the pain of lost love. This occurs mostly in my heart, John, but that's where it counts and that's where we live. I sin because I'm a sinner, I'm a soldier without armor running across a battlefield getting shot up by fiery darts from the enemy. I couldn't leave the church if I wanted to. I love the people and I'm enthralled by the gospel of the beautiful Messiah, but I'm a pile of manure on the white marble floor of Christ, a mongrel dog that sneaked in the back door of the king's banquet to lick the crumbs off the floor, and by being close to Christians who are rich in the blessings of Christ, I get some of the overflow and ask you to pray for me as you think best. Pretty sad, huh? Now, as a pastor... I don't want to think that my preaching makes somebody feel like manure. I mean, that's not the point. But that's what he said. How is it that strong preaching can strip someone so naked of all assurance of salvation? Listen. When a person is under strong biblical preaching on God's holy standard... Or when you're in an environment where God's holy standard is highly exalted and lifted up, 
It will tend to so confront your sinfulness as to make you insecure. You see, that forces people to see their sinfulness and their coming short and acknowledge the holiness of God. You say, is that bad? No, listen to this. The pulpit should be the creator of anxious hearts. The pulpit should be the creator of anxious hearts. If this chapel pulpit doesn't make you anxious about your spiritual condition, it fails to do what it ought to do. The consistent call to righteousness, the consistent call to holiness will unsettle you, and rightly it should unsettle you. Now let me quickly add that this kind of preaching, frankly, today is rare. Churches across our country are filled with smug people who are very comfortable. Who never feel insecure because nothing in their life is ever confronted. So what's there to feel insecure about? It's just a lot of sermonettes for Christianettes. Just a lot of platitudes and just a lot of little self-help things and psychological ploys and how to feel better about yourself and how to feel good about your marriage. And many preachers feel their duty is to make people feel good. The truth is your duty is to make people feel bad before they feel good. Rather than leading people to examine themselves and look at their own lives and face a holy standard, preaching today tends to ignore the holy standard and try to make people feel good about themselves no matter how they live. The pulpit is to be the creator of anxious hearts. And if it's doing its work, it's going to do that. And it is true that strong preaching of a holy standard tends to make people feel a lack of assurance. When one condition is true, when there is known sin in their life. So if you have sin in your life and you sit under strong preaching, that is a reason to cause you to doubt. Secondly, a second of these reasons is the inability to forgive yourself. The inability to forgive yourself. There are many people who lack assurance because they can't accept forgiveness. I mean, they can accept it theologically. They can understand that it exists. But they are tyrannized not by their minds, but by their emotions. They feel they are too bad to be forgiven. They were too bad to be saved, and they're still too bad to be being forgiven. You say, why is this so? I'm going to tell you this is very important. The reason you feel the lack of assurance sometimes because you're so guilty about your sin and you feel you're just too bad to be a Christian. I mean, can I really be a Christian? Look at the sin in my life. Can I really be forgiven? It, it's the same sin that keeps coming up. The reason is because there are some accusers that you live with every day. Number one is conscience. Now listen carefully to what I say. Conscience knows nothing about forgiveness. Do you understand that? Conscience has no concept of forgiveness. All conscience can do is create emotional pain. It creates guilt. It has no sense of mercy. It has no sense of grace. It has no sense of relief. All it does is convict. 
And God intended it to do that. So here you are, and you've made what you believe is a true profession of faith in Jesus Christ. You're doing your best to walk as a Christian ought to walk. You look at your life and you say, look at the sin in my life. Look what I was, and look what still goes on in my life. I can't forgive myself. I can't accept this. I'm under guilt, and conscience is saying, yeah, yeah, and just hammering, because conscience has no connection to grace, mercy, or forgiveness. There's a second component. Law. Law has no relationship to forgiveness. Law has no relationship to grace, and nor does law have any relationship to mercy. All law does is hit you with the standard all the time, all the time. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And when you are in a position to understand the law of God, and when you read the Bible and it says that sinners and unrighteous people and wicked people and fornicators and adulterers and robbers and all of that are, are an abomination to God. You hear law, 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 and law knows nothing about grace. And so you are continually b uh, battered by conscience and you are battered by law. And there's a third accuser with you all the time, and that's justice. Justice. There is built into us a sense of what is right, a sense of what is fair. And justice speaks unmercifully against your sin. Justice cries out for retribution. And if you want to add an extraneous accuser, you can add Satan, who is called in Scripture the accuser of whom? Of the brethren. Who wants to smash you with crushing blows of doubt. That's why you need the helmet of the hope of salvation. Listen. Satan added to those other indwelling accusers of conscience and law and justice will do everything he can to obscure the love and grace of God. One Puritan wrote this, He that lacks assurance of God's love converses too much with Satan. He that lacks assurance of God's love converses too much with Satan. He says to himself, writes this Puritan, the devil is always following and tempting me to suspect the love of Christ. And he does it that he may attain his mind upon me. For the devil knows well enough that the more I suspect Christ's love, the more I shall embrace Satan's love. The truth is, beloved, this lack of assurance of God's love or interest in Christ is an inlet to many sins and miseries. For first a man doubts of his own salvation. Afterwards he has continued doubting, then he rises up to a full conclusion saying, Now I know that Christ doesn't love me. I did but doubt before, but now I know he doesn't love me. And after he has risen to this conclusion, then he shortly rises higher and says, If Christ doesn't love me now, he will never love me. And if I have not an interest in Christ now, after all the preaching I have heard and the ordinances I have enjoyed, I shall never have it. And so the longer I live, the more I aggravate my self-condemnation. So says William Bridge. And so you have these accusers that heap your guilt up. And that causes you to doubt your salvation. If you allow Satan, he will crush your head with the holy requirements of God stripped of grace. Did you hear that? If you allow Satan, he will crush your head with the holy requirements of God stripped of grace.
stripped of mercy, stripped of love, and you will doubt. There's a third reason that people doubt their salvation. And that is because of ignorance of salvation. They don't understand salvation. I already mentioned the Arminians who, who in this sense, I believe, come short of a proper understanding of salvation. Salvation is an utterly divine, totally sovereign, complete operation by God on the sinner. And if you don't understand the essence of salvation, you're going to have a lot of trouble with assurance. As I said earlier, if you believe that salvation is a cooperative effort between you and God, and He'll never fail, but you might, then you're never going to have assurance. If you believe that somehow you participate in maintaining your salvation, you have a real problem on your hands. If you believe something less than what salvation actually accomplishes, you're going to have a problem. Let me speak to that issue for a moment. The Bible says that when we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says that God sent His Son into the world to completely pay the price for all our sins, past, present, future. That salvation was a perfect, total, complete provision. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 1.18. Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Total cleansing. Listen to Isaiah 43.25. God forgives you and He says this is how complete. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. You say, well, wait a minute, that's only the future ones. Well, they were all future when He said that. Doesn't that sound like good news to you? You might remember, but God can't. Dr. Harry Ironsides wrote, You may never be able to forget the years of wandering and the many sins of which you have been guilty, but that which gives peace is the knowledge that God will never remember them. He has blotted them from the book of His remembrance, and He has done it in righteousness, for the account is completely settled, the debt is paid. That's the point I want to emphasize. When Christ died on the cross, the debt for your sin was totally paid. Totally paid. When Israel was, for example, preparing to leave Egypt, the last plague, the terrible death of the firstborn, was about to fall on the land. And God said to His people, Slay a lamb and take the blood, put it on the doorpost, the lintel, which is the cross piece at the top. And the angel of death will come, and when the angel of death sees the blood sprinkled on the doorpost, he'll pass by your house. Now I can imagine that scene that night as the angel came. There were some people sitting in their houses like this, frightened out of their minds. Because saying, well, we did what we were supposed to do. We put the blood out there, but we're not sure it'll work. You know, we have a lot of sin in this house. Particularly this guy over here, we can't get him in the line. But the point is this, and there were others who were sitting back there singing praises to God. Saying, hey, this is what the... 
the message from the Lord is we're in complete confidence. The angel's going right on by our place. And as the angel was coming down their street, and you could hear the grief and the cries and the screams of the people down the street, these people, on the one hand, were getting more and more nervous, and the others were more and more confident that God would pass them by. But in either case, may I remind you, in either case, the angel passed by because it had not to do with the momentary condition of the people, but with the blood that was placed on the door. Can I encourage you with that confidence that when the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary for our redemption is applied to us, it is no longer a matter of what is going on. It is only a matter of the blood that covers. That's precisely what you're saying. Right? You're covered. If you doubt that or don't understand that, then you're going to forfeit assurance. Your security and your assurance doesn't depend on living a perfect life. It depends on being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. A young convert said, If anyone is ever to be kept out of heaven for my sins, it will have to be Jesus. Because he took them all on himself and made himself responsible for them. Isn't that a great statement? If anybody is ever to be kept out of heaven for my sins, it'll have to be Jesus because he took them all on himself and made himself responsible for them. The matter is settled. It's absolutely settled. So, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Anything? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's why John says, I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have, what? Eternal life. The Christian faith is a secure faith. The blood covers. And so we can sing that old hymn, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. There's no reason for you to doubt. There really isn't. But these are the things that make us doubt. And there are more than this. And then there are very important solutions. But our time is gone, so we're going to have to wait until next time.